Welcome everyone to this episode of Pinchrepreneur. Really excited today to have our very own Chief Revenue Officer, Kevin Clark, on the show with us. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kevin. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's going to be a fun discussion. Today we're going to be talking about fintech and traditional finance. We live in a country where we have these very dominant banks that dominate the financial services landscape. Fintechs are creeping up and offering various things. There's always this ongoing discussion as to how that will evolve. Do they partner with banks? Do they eventually get acquired in certain cases? Uh, There's certain things that the traditional banks do really well, and there's things that the fintechs do do better. And so it'd be interesting to dive into that. You know, you've got by far the deepest banking background of anyone we've had on the show. So, you know, before we dive into all those topics, uh, it'd be great to give our listeners a bit of background on yourself, your career path, how you, you know, ended up in this, you know, deep banking career and now in fintech. Mm. Well, it may be a bit of a boring story, but I can certainly tell you that the the summer job experience uh, post high school and and uh, going into business school gave me a very clear picture of wanting to be in financial services and frankly wanting to be a lender. I mean, that what's really interesting about my desire of spending a whole career in financial services was actually about wanting to be a lender. And um, it's come a little bit full circle in that, given what I do today with merchant growth and what I've enjoyed so much of being part in part of the financial technology world. But certainly in the beginnings, coming out of business school in 1985, which feels like a bit of a long time ago, but life goes by fast. But I joined the bank in the investment banking, which was then really a treasury function in the big banks. Today, of course, with the merger of some of the traditional financial pillars in Canada, investment banking is exactly what we think of it as uh, mergers and acquisitions and so forth. But back in the day, an investment banking in a bank was actually being in treasury and managing money market activity, precious metals, or or any of the other functions, money movement, et cetera. And uh, I did that for a couple of years in Toronto, then asked to go to New York, still in the capacity of being in what was then the investment banking on Wall Street. But I transferred into the corporate bank in New York because that's all we did in the United States was wholesale activities, whether it be treasury functions or, or lending. And I ended up in a, in a wonderful career in the corporate bank, seeing many, many different things, not only across Europe and the United States, but eventually, you know, internationally wide in the most international bank. So it was now, a fascinating- was specifically Scotia Bank. That was all specifically within Scotia. I'm sorry if I didn't say that earlier, but it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And frankly, being in the international bank, I got a lot more exposure to the size of businesses from the small business slash commercial experience right up into institutional lending. And I didn't have that in the corporate bank, but in the international world, small business is a big part of many markets. And that's actually, you know, one of the things that, as they say, has come around in doing what I do today within Merchant and the passion that I carry for small business, somewhat uniquely derived out of working internationally. But anyway, so I had a number of years in the corporate bank and then into the international years. And at that point, I joined the bank's senior credit committee and spent if I wasn't on an airplane, I was sitting in the committee. And so I had this combination of being part of risk and understanding what risk is all about and how risk gets adjudicated, but also being on the ground and in market, talking to small business owners right through to commercial, corporate, and institutional borrowers. 
And so got a wonderful, wonderful exposure to global markets in very much on the ground experience. And so leaving the bank in 2015 after 30 years and wanting to be in the technology space, being in fintech was certainly a natural move for me. And being in the lending space also was a natural move. And so it wasn't that small business was the immediate passion of wanting to be in the, as a small business lender, but that's where the technology was happening as it relates to risk. And so it was a wonderful sort of move in, in leveraging so much of the experience that I had had in the bank into a financial technology position in lending and in the small business space where technology was driving, obviously, the workflow but also uniquely the adjudication, which is you know one of the things that that merchant does so well. Adjudication was really changing. And then, to be quite honest, guys, the realization that there is actually life outside the big five, because I think when you actually grow up in one of the banks, there really isn't anybody else. I mean, it's not that we're brainwashed or drugged. It's just that we dominate so much of the marketplace. There isn't concern for the development of what was then the credit union market and other private finance that just held such small market shares compared to what we were doing. And now technology that that is creeping into market share discussions and so forth. It really, it wasn't there only eight years ago when I ventured into it. And it's sort of interesting to see how technology has come in to the larger institutions. And although it was always there in a certain way, it wasn't really there in innovation. And, and it was always the sort of mindset, never be first in financial services because whoever goes first makes the mistake and then you learn from it. I think that that mindset has changed a lot because now one needs to be first because if you're not at the, you know, you have to be past the post and you got to win. And now market share gains are driven out of technology and so much advancement. But anyway, that's a little bit of history. And certainly through the last eight years in technology, have learned tremendously more about how financial services is going to be in the future, thanks to the world of technology and the innovation and the capital now, of course, that's been put behind it to see all institutions grow, whether they be traditional or whether they be relatively new. So the eight years of financial technology on top of the 30 years of call it traditional banking, has given me a wonderful viewpoint from the top of the hill, if you will, on what's going on. And so today, my day is pretty much dominated by technology. There's a few other outside interests and so forth that I've been asked to be a part of that I enjoy. But uh, being in this space has been a wonderful continuation for my career anyway. So that's sort of me. Thanks for the, for the few minutes on that. But that's sort of me by background. Kevin, uh you and I have had the pleasure of going on some trips uh, for conferences and business development. And I've heard some of these stories, um, which is really cool because, you know, my interest is also previously in international business and different ways people are doing businesses. And so from your experience in doing business, I believe it was what South America, Asia, areas like that. What did you see as a, sort of a big difference in these places as opposed to how we do business here in Canada? Well, there's certainly cultural adjustment for any particular market that one does business with, and you need to learn that. And you learn often the hard way on trying to close transactions and large transactions and cultural interference can be something that needs to be be managed. I think you learn that 
people are the same in a lot of places, right? They want to do business and want to get stuff done. And capital transfers are not unique to many of the markets that we did business in. And, you know, often it's about how do we bring some of these good learnings home? How do we take what we've learned in the Americas or take what we've learned in other markets that are maybe advanced more than where we are in certain things and maybe not advanced so much in other things? But often it's about, you know, how do we bring that back? And I think like bringing people of different backgrounds into an organization, it's the same with bringing product sometimes, bringing product back home and finding ways to do things. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I can't deny that representing financial services and a Canadian bank working abroad, as you probably felt within your organization previously, Eli, that you wear a pretty impressive badge doing business in other markets when you carry a Canadian flag and certainly a Canadian financial institution, because we have a very aggressive and strong regulator that's ensured that we maintain this standing. Mm. And so it's not difficult to be sort of well-respected and listened to when you're speaking on different topics when you're abroad and trying to do business in other markets wearing the Canadian badge or financial services badge in particular. But I think to answer the point, it's about what we bring back, the knowledge and exposure we get in other markets and bring it home and how do we do business better here. I mean, at the end of the day, of course, we're fortunate to be in the marketplace we are, to have the guardrails of good government and good laws and and all the things that go into making business easier to manage, although it suffers from potentially the bureaucracy of regulation. But it's about how we build back by learning from others, I think, really. On that point, Kevin, you mentioned earlier that Scotia was more advanced in small business lending in some of the other markets. You mentioned that the international space for the bank was heavier in the small business than the domestic. Do I understand that right? And if so, why was that the case? Well, many of the markets that we operated in, you know, if you look at a lot of the Latin markets, there are certainly large capital pools of movement, but there is a big, a big services industry that's on the ground that's just whether it works above or below the the sort of expected market conditions, like there's a lot of movements in many currencies and it's just there's a plethora of businesses that operate commercially in these markets that where you don't have big regulated long-term assets and you can't actually build long-term lending relationships in many markets just because you don't have the the regulation to lend long-term. There's too much risk in it. So a lot of these markets operate in short-dated markets. So commercial lending and short-term lending are very, very big in these markets. That's really why I think I got a, a good sense of of the need for the immediacy of working capital and, and support. And then it then it really comes down to how do you underwrite risk in so many markets? And that's where we have significant value, Dave, in working in the marketplace we do, because we've got third-party bureau checks and regulated real estate and all the things, the the ability to actually own property, have good laws around that, that doesn't happen in all the markets that you can actually do business in. And so we get the benefit of being able to perfect so much of what we do because we know we have good guidelines around us. The lending in those other markets tends to be more short-term? Well, in some cases, it really has to be. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a risk decision. But if you think about, you can imagine the size of the continental-based banks in the European market and the significance of infrastructure and the projects there, that you can develop really long-term lending markets. Same in North America. But when you go into other markets, 
it tends to go much shorter just because of political risk, uncertainty on laws, you know, the whole ability to. Um, and, and so that makes a larger portion of the lending activity, you know, more small business in nature. Yes. Yeah. Small business and well, smaller and small business. I mean, that's where a lot of uh, activity takes place in many of these markets is in the commercial space, as opposed to what we would call, we would dominate more in the corporate space. So just very different. Hmm. Anyway, and there's also a big difference in the technology. I mean, when we really think about it, the advancements that, that are going on in banking and financial services start probably in, in the European market and the New York market, and they venture out from there. And obviously, the Canadian market is behind it. If you think about open banking and where financial services has gone, I mean, Europe has been the most progressive. And somewhat behind that is the United States. And well behind that is the Canadian decisioning around open banking. And it may be because it's dominated, as you said, Dave, by a monopolistic position of institutions here in the Canadian market that are trying to decide whether this is good for them or not. And they have a lot of clout in their decision. You know, this is the open banking is not just about a government's decision. It's about a marketplace decision. And the progression that we've seen in Europe that's been followed by the United States is impressive. And we need to be on that train. I'm not sure we are, but we're moving in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think that's the, you know, the differences <laughs> across geographies across the globe and financial services, how things evolve, how the products differ a little bit. You have that sort of bird's view, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and I think technology has been a little bit different because technology can leapfrog. I mean, I think when technology really started to surface as a need to spend and, and implied uh, product development arm of the banks, it was early on, it was maybe awareness and then it was denial. I mean, I, I remember banks saying, well, we're tech companies too. I mean, <laughs> really? I mean, but seriously, I mean, those were quotes in the paper by Canadian bank CEOs. We're a tech company. But that's just a desire to be in the club. It wasn't really effective. And so Kevin, and, on uh, that, yeah, sure, John. Sorry, on that point, that's kind of where I wanted to lead the conversation is that you have perspective from both the big bank side and from the fintech side. And I know that over the last eight years since you've left the bank, there's been fintech has grown a lot. So it may be a bit different now. But yeah, give us a bit of a perspective as to what you know the banks when fintech started really becoming relevant. Was that seen as a threat? Was there any consideration to leverage fintech and partner? You know, what was the perspective from that side, and how do you see it now from being on this side yeah, of us? It's a great topic. It's a two-hour topic unto itself, I think. But the, I think the banks early on were of the view that, well, we could build that too. We could build mm -hmm. that too. And I guess it becomes the question: Does innovation actually live in the banks? in the mindset of employees and so forth. And we always used to talk from a leadership perspective in the bank that we have to be thinking of ourselves as entrepreneurs in order to be expansive and to bring new product into the bank. And that's all well-intentioned. But the reality was is that it's very difficult to be innovative in a larger bureaucratic organization just because it is. Decisions take longer and capital moves slower. And I think of the way decisions get made within our business today in our small business lending space, we make a decision, we make a decision, we go. We test, we accept failure, we move on, we grow. In the larger institutions, that's harder to do. And I think the early days of recognizing the space and technology was very much dependent on the type of product that was being offered to the bank as a in sort of collaborative ways. 
and small points around consumer retail environments and little things you can do from a technology perspective and managing your accounts and so forth was very different than how do we integrate modern ways of looking at risk or doing stuff with our data. I mean, there were, I think, a lot of really misunderstood conceptions on the value of technology. And I think the banks moved quite slowly. And frankly, you could see the difference between one bank and another on who was doing what in the zoo here in terms of taking a progressive approach to technology. And even even within our shop at Scotia, when we developed this whole sort of separate think tank for technology and had 300 people in it, the ability to integrate that into the bank was extremely difficult. I mean, I'm speaking third hand because it was sort of developed out post my departure. But I certainly recall many discussions at the executive level on how difficult it was to integrate the thinking and to run that platform inside the bank and to the point where it really didn't work that well, frankly. You're telling me here you have 300 people at the bank focused on the kind of future of technology and how you would integrate it into the bank? Yeah, I think a lot of the banks had these sort of separate teams that they would build. In fact, RBC, when they built out their ventures team, was essentially that. And I think they took a really interesting approach in that they invested in some of these innovative partnerships as they brought them in. In fact, so did National Bank. But different banks took different steps towards innovation. And I think now it's very much, I mean, think of how in our businesses, we all have head of partnerships. Yeah. Every every tech company has a head of partnerships. And now you start to see, even in the banks and larger institutions, there's a head of partnerships. Yeah. Because that's now the important leg. I remember when the CIBC actually established the first head of technology partnerships, and it enabled them to reach out and try to coordinate this plethora of innovation happening that was now starting to occupy spaces on Bay Street and wanting to talk to the bank. And like just the traffic created or the inability to actually move through an institution of these sizes with innovative ideas became very difficult. And so ahead of partnerships was a necessary approach to help guide innovation. And it needed, you know, it works from the top down. You need a CEO in a large institution to say, this is the way we're going. And so mm. let's get ahead of partnerships in here to help us move some of these innovative ideas that are hitting at our front door and guide them into that particular business vertical and create some relationships. And I think now it's probably really good. I mean, I've obviously I've been out of the banking side, but now I'm on the other side. And I see the openness and the interest. And there is still a you know a constant buy versus build discussion. Mm -hmm. But the collaboration is very strong. And the recognition that antiquated old architecture and software and the ways that we do business and from our perspective maybe underwrite has become, you know, very, very necessarily progressive on bringing in new ideas. And we're going to start to see a lot of human capital now move between innovation and traditional financial services. And I'm sure that's happening, especially post-COVID, where we can actually hire really good data people into new positions in the banks. And there's a lot more human capital movement than there ever was between traditional finance and financial technology now. 
And that's really valuable. It's valuable for the country's economic development and financial services, and it's valuable for the firms that are attracting. I'm not sure there's as much movement from financial services tradition into tech, people like me, but there probably will be in the future as younger people that are growing up in traditional financial services are now seeing opportunities to take their skill sets into technology. I think it's now more both ways. But, you know, I might be a bit of a newbie in that. And given my traditional experience and now being in tech. And so, you know, the runway starts to creep up on you a little bit if if you've done 30 years in something. But hopefully there's tremendous opportunity still for me to learn on a go forward basis because there's just so much going on in the space. I agree, Kevin. I've seen a lot more openness from the banks to talk to us, you know, about things just in the last few years. That resonates with me. I think that there's a steady trend here, a long-term trend, and it's likely to continue where there's more open-mindedness around collaboration. Um, There's some that kind of take that to the extreme and think about it into the future further and, you know, essentially say that the banks are a utility. They're these regulated entities that take deposits and pretty much everything that's customer facing is going to be fintech driven. It's that sort of customer acquisition layer, interaction layer, et cetera. And that, you know, the banks are going to feel more like utilities that operate in the background as opposed to services businesses. What do you think about that? Does that resonate with you? A little bit in that, obviously, we see technology show up in our everyday use of financial services products. And so retail is always going to be reflective of what the technology is giving us in terms of taking the friction out of everyday experiences. There is, as we know, though, a tremendous amount of technology that's being developed that's behind the scenes, the the data analysis to enable better focused options for different demographics, the workflow experience even within the organizations of these larger financial services, not to touch the customer, but in their everyday way of adjudicating credit processing operational efficiencies and doing a lot of different things and managing their exposures and so forth. That's all technology driven too. And there's a lot of fintech that's developing on trading floors and and the operational aspects of business within audit and finance. There's fintech all through these organizations. We see the front end of it, Dave, because that's our everyday use. Certainly though, there's a lot of development going on and investment in technology that's driving other parts of having these, as you call them, utilities actually operate. In fact, there may be even more. It's just that, you know, we see, as I say, the stuff that's important to us at the front end. I mean, at the end of the day, as I sort of see it, there's there's sort of only really a few big pillars out there. There is clearly the wealth management and uh, investment that's going on. And that takes a lot of, of technology now. We've seen the successes of Wealthsimple and others that are helping drive investment decisions using technology. And then there's the vertical on on payments and money transfer. And there's tremendous work. As, as we all know, we're spending some time in the payment space. That technology has always been a huge part of financial technology globally. And then there are the lending aspects of technology in in fintech that what we do there is our core in the consumer space and and moving capital around in the support of institution or or individual. And then lastly, you know, I think the final leg is on the insurance side. And 
other sort of tertiary financial services. And so all of these four major pillars really drive, in my mind, huge financial technology opportunity to move these utilitarian sort of institutions into uh, true technology companies. They just have a long way to go to get there. And to your point, I think there's a lot you know nibbling at their ankles because of the likes of digital banks now and so forth. But they are going to be needing to ensure that they're meeting regulatory requirements as they engage into more of traditional financial services provisions. And so regulation now has the challenge and regulatory bodies have the challenge of themselves being up to speed and innovative on how these rules and regulations are going to apply to the new world going forward as all of this finance stuff starts to decentralize. So, yeah, it sounds like, you know, fintechs, financial technology is going to play an increasingly big role in the industry. Uh, I think there's no doubts there from anybody. And that's going to be a combination of innovation within the banks and independent fintech kind of companies. And so, you know, it sounds like there's going to be this move towards the banks being a bit more like a utility. It's probably going to, as opposed to having all of the innovation in-house, that there'll be more partnering going on and more API pings going on between fintechs and the bank. And good point that a lot of fintech, you know, partnership and acquisition and activity is likely going to happen in the back end too. But I think the banks used to do the whole thing, right? And I think that they're going to kind of shrink a little bit and have more independent businesses, fintech companies kind of filling in a lot of it. So that's that's yeah. going to be interesting to see where they really end up. And and I'm I'm guessing some will really decide to just shed a lot and just become this deposit taking role. Whereas, you know, others will decide it's more important to own more of the value chain essentially. Yeah. I, I think, I think interesting to see like how different banks what strategies they decide to take we obviously see a lot more different types of strategies happening in the us because there's just a lot more banks but uh specifically in canada it'll be interesting to see what kind of different decisions get made at different yeah well who owns i mean (laughs) i think you're right i i think the technology but it's a little bit of the tail now starting to wave the dog and so what's interesting is the large the very large tech plays have a very, very big customer base. I mean, when we really, you know, it wasn't 10 years ago where we said, who has the highest number of customers? We'd say, well, the banks do. They have millions of customers. Large tech companies have millions of customers now too and have huge influence on how they go about doing their daily activity. And part of that is financial services activity. And so I think the other shoe is still to drop on whether these larger, what we refer to as social media businesses or larger tech companies actually start to engage more heavily in financial services, because if they want to do it, they probably can. I'm not sure whether they see margin or whether they see that growth and do they really want to be a, a dominant financial services business? I mean, there are better margins in other industries than there are in financial services. By virtue of the size of our customer base, the big banks produce pretty sizable margins. And the Canadian banking industry has one of the highest fee structures globally. 
And that's not to say they rip off Canadians. It's all to say that that we have accepted the services that we get and for what we pay. In many other markets, there are not nearly the fee structures that there are in the Canadian market for the same fundamental services. So fintech has a long way of opportunity to disrupt that structure unto itself and to force more efficiency into the larger institutions to compete if these larger tech companies choose to be more involved in financial services. We've already seen some of that happening, right? With the Shopify and their financial services arm and Amazon with their payment processing, all that kind of stuff. So there's definitely been, that's already started, I think, and it'll probably get bigger and bigger. But one thing I wanted to bring up on fintech is that we often talk about fintech as a way of enabling the banks to do more of what they're doing and things like that, which I think is a very big part of fintech. Yeah. But one perspective on fintech from a conversation I had with someone a couple of weeks ago that I hadn't thought about is how it empowers, you know, people that traditionally would have only had the option at working at the bank to do things like, you know, wealth management, for example, because of the infrastructure that was already built out at these big banks and all the different services that they can tap into by being a representative of that bank. Whereas with some of the technology that's coming up in fintech, it has the ability to empower these people that want to potentially start their own wealth management fund or they want to start their whatever else it may help expedite their ability to do so because it won't require so much build out and so much different infrastructure. I don't know if that makes sense, but one of the examples he gave me was in wealth management, whereby someone would work there because they had to tap into, you know, a bunch of different databases. They had to, you know, there was a bunch of things going on. Whereas now with some of the technologies being built, they can go start, take their book independently and have those same services all fully automated basically. Right. And that's one one example of of probably many in insurance and in, uh, in finance and you know everything yeah. around that that I think will keep happening. And so I just thought it was cool to bring up as a different perspective as to what fintech could help empower. Well, you're absolutely right. I think the only the next step on that discussion is exactly that that get so big that all of a sudden they become attractive for the bank to buy it again. Yeah. And and the circle goes around because if you think of the wealth management platforms, the banks were not in the wealth management business 15 years ago, or maybe 20 years ago. Today, they dominate it, but they don't dominate because they built it organically. They dominate it because they bought it. They basically right. bought the wealth management platform because they saw the value and the connection between wealth management and commercial business or consumer business. And so they bought it. And I think, Eli, you're absolutely right. And that discussion was relevant because innovation is allowing independent thinking and entrepreneurialism to grow. And technology has enabled that. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting that as they get bigger and bigger, consolidation takes place and market share starts to enter into it. And all of a sudden there's a purchase because there's been perceived value and, and then it, it starts again. Yeah. And uh, But we see that all the time now. And I think it's incredible. The next generation, my generation was, you know, if you were in financial services, you did exactly what Kevin Clark did. You move through an organization, you grow, you find different ladders to grow, and you become uh, successful in that regard. Today, the younger financial services professional has so many more choices to grow. And uh, there might be a little bit more risk. 
But that risk has returned through capital appreciation and through exposure and experience to different types and different leadership that that was never there. And so it's a fascinating time to be in financial services now. And I think as we talked about earlier, this move of human capital between large and small firms is going to be something that's going to be much more dynamic. And it used to be when we looked at a resume, how many years did you do in a certain job to define whether you were capable of being in financial services? Now, the more jobs you see, that's actually the better because you've got so much different exposure to different parts of of the ecosystem in financial services. At least that's the way I look at resumes now. Very different than I looked at them 10 years ago. And I think that's going to be very important for building out businesses with really good people. I mean, the technology is sort of, you know, the new jobs now are, are in that. I mean, we've created all these fantastic ways of going about things. And we have now so much at our fingertips. And so, you know, if you go back far enough, all of that activity was human touch with humans to affect something. Now we've got technology in our hands, but there actually are humans behind all that, writing that software, writing that half a million lines of code in a given year to produce that product. And so there's still human capital. It's just moving into different spaces to affect the advancement of financial services. It's fascinating, frankly. This has been a a fascinating high-level discussion, Kevin. Your perspective is very unique relative to others we've had and and very diverse. So thank you for that. And, and as you were kind of leading into more forward-looking discussion, the question we often ask at the end of these is, you know, fast forward 10, maybe even 20 years from now, big picture, what would you expect or hope, you know, would transpire between now and then in this industry? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, one takes sort of a personal approach to the answer to these kinds of questions. I mean, I get cash out of the bank, I don't know, once every couple of months just to have some cash in my wallet. There's a good example of what started. I mean, we used to go to the cash machine every other day. Today, we don't go to the cash machine. So I I think there's a slow devolution of actual hard currency in in our hands and, and just because of need, right? It's just going away on us. And that's our market. That's not other markets. I was just down in the Caribbean the other, you know, as you know, last month. And if you don't have cash in your hands, then you're going nowhere. So there's still the global financial services market is a long runway of different players at different speeds. Here in the Canadian market, financial services is is always going to be well-regulated. And we're going to see smart contracts and blockchain actually finally have use by applying them to risk locking in risk, trading risk. That's going to help us with buying and selling our home. It's going to help us with the purchase of other assets or the the sale of assets. It's going to help us with adjudicating credit and moving credit. So we're going to see just continued use of data and innovation to combine into a, a even a more sophisticated way of uh, transacting than what we do today. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And how our wealth is stored and managed is is going to be really, really interesting. You know, today we have our wealth in real estate and stock, and we watch them move around and so forth. Some of this is going to get locked in and tradable, and we're going to have different views on the home we own and whether we own it or not. Do we care? You know, there's just going to be very different experiences coming our way in financial services. I think all to the better. I don't think we're on any kind of worrying slope as to whether or not 
the world's not going to be as safe a place. I think it'll be just really interesting around all of how we manage our wealth and our well-being. But, you know, it's hard to predict. But these things are never revolutionary, right? They're only evolutionary. And, you know, think of where we are today and where we were when merchant growth was founded in 2010. I mean, there are very different things that we do today that would have been done when it was founded based on current technology. And that has been evolution. It hasn't been revolution. And so it's just too big a marketplace to think that there's going to be some silver bullet that's going to show up tomorrow. I mean, hopefully that happens in the energy sector and we get off of fossil fuels. It won't happen in the financial services sector. It will be evolutionary. We'll adapt to it and we'll probably benefit from it. It'll be easier. It'll be effective. And frankly, you know, probably an, an even more enhanced lifestyle for us. Tibet is revolutionary. That's the only thing. Everything else is evolutionary. Well, there'll be these pockets of <laughs> pockets of of uh, revolution to solve for things. I mean, yeah, and yeah. it's and your point's actually not that far off. I mean, new entry of new products will suddenly show, and, and we'll read about them in the paper, or or they'll come in, and some will be competitive, and some won't. Yeah, uh, Tabit is a perfectly legitimate product that's nicely evolved out of what we do best at Merchant. Yeah. And and has a absolutely has a future and and the foresight to put this into play was a good one, and it will prove to be a valuable addition to our set of products at Merchant and move us into that space, that payment space that, as I say, is probably the most dominant of all the pillars in financial services for technology. And I think it's important to have a piece in that space along with our traditional lending space, which won't go away. It may change in form, but the movement of capital will always be there. That's great. Thanks, Kevin, for joining us. It's always fun chatting. We have these chats often, but you know, recording them and actually getting into some details has been really fun. So thanks for your insight and for joining us today. Thanks a lot for taking the time to include me in these because I think it's fun to have these discussions. And, uh, you know, there's no right or wrong on here. It's just a, a different view from a different perspective. And uh, if we have the same chat in a year, it might even be different then. But yeah, that's very dynamic and exciting times. Absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. Thanks so much, Kevin. That's and a pleasure, thanks. guys. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Yeah. Uh, okay. Until next time, this was Fentrepreneur. Entrepreneur.